glad that you are here at the 9 a.m. service uh, joining us uh, as we are uh, near, uh, finishing today uh, our summer sermon series in the book of Proverbs. But before we jump in, uh, let me just say, if uh, you're new to our church, please drop by the Connect table, Connect 10 on the way out, uh, say hello. I'd, I'd love to meet you. And college students, please come, come back after the second service and uh, join us for uh, welcome back lunch. Uh, but uh, this morning is uh, our last sermon in the book of Proverbs as we've been in it all summer seeking to understand the way of wisdom and how to live with godly skill as we navigate the complexities of life. And we've looked at complex issues like the tongue, friendship, decision-making, anger, sex. And this morning, we're going to look at a topic that we spend one-third of our life navigating, work. We will spend over 90,000 hours of our life working, one-third of our life. So how do we live wisely in regards to work? A few quick asides. Uh, first is students who are here this morning. Uh, when I say work this morning, you should, of course, think about the work you will do when you graduate and when you finish school. But I also want you to apply what we're looking at this morning to your work, to your calling as students in this season of your life. Secondly, parents who work in the home, uh, please don't tune me out as though this doesn't apply to you. Notice I didn't say stay at home because you are a mom or a dad who work in the home and you have a huge job and it's crucial uh, and we're thankful for those who are called to that. And lastly, uh, this is a time for me to plug our Faith and Work module. It's an adult education module that we have coming up in October, uh, four weeks uh, looking at faith and work. Uh, so we'll go into much more depth than I could ever cover in one sermon around faith and work. So uh, check that out, sign up for it as it comes uh, later this fall. So uh, I wanted to kind of start out by sharing one of my favorite TV shows and that I watched in the past year was an Apple TV show called Severance. Any of you saw, I know some of you, I've talked with some of you about this TV show. Uh, there's a ton I could say about the show. But the main concept is there's a tech company called Lumen. And they have a severance division. A division that people opt into, they apply to be a part of. And the severance division has this name because the employees go through a medical procedure so that when they enter the workplace of Lumen, as they ride in the elevator to the severance division floor, their brains sever in such a way that who they are at work is different than who they are apart from work. They call it their any and their outie. Uh, the work self is the any, and, and they don't know what's going on on the outside. They feel no, mo no emotions about what's happening on the outside. They simply do their work for Lumen. The Audi knows about the any, but doesn't know what works, work looks like or what relationships at work look like. There is a complete severance from who they are at work, from who they are apart from work. And I think this is interesting because I believe it is easy for us to live severed between who we are at work and who we are apart from work. For example, we can come here on a Sunday morning and we are all reminded that our identity is in Christ, uh, that, that we are unconditionally loved by our Father in heaven. And then we wake up on Monday morning and it's easy to go into the mode of living life like we're being ranked on how well we performed that day. And we measure ourselves against others and we feel the pressure to earn the approval of others as though our performance is our identity. 
It can be difficult to hold together what we experience on Sunday to our work on Monday. And so I'm going to use this morning uh, perhaps a familiar passage to some of you, but I'm going I'm to guess that for most of you, you've not considered this passage as an application to work. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, it is a passage that has been referred to by many as the passage about the good wife or the excellent wife. And Solomon, the author of Proverbs, is speaking about what to look for in a wife as he addresses his royal sons. But I think the strong woman, the valiant woman of Proverbs 31 has so much more to teach us than what Christian guys should look for in dating. The Proverbs 31 woman is one of the best examples and one of the best teachers in the Bible in regards to wisdom and work. And so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to give our attention to God's word. Proverbs 31 verses 10 to 31. This is God's word. An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm in all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you fall fresh upon our spirits? So you might quicken our ears to hear and our hearts might be soft to receive that you might visit us through the living word of God, that I would get out of the way so Christ and Christ alone speaks. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Speak to us, Lord, and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Listen, whether you do your work in the home or out in the community as a volunteer or for a paycheck, the question for those of us who are Christians is how does your faith relate to your work? How does your faith relate to your work? When I became a Christian in high school and then grew in my faith in college, I remember hearing a phrase over and over at Christian ministry gatherings. The speaker would make an appeal to everyone listening with this phrase. There are only two things that will last forever, the souls of men and women and the Word of God. 
And the force of that statement was to get you to consider that if you want to live your life for something eternal, you better go into vocational ministry. Because ministry is the business of souls and the word of God. Whether it was conscious or subconscious by the speakers, I was often made to feel that if I really wanted to do something for God, I better go into full-time vocational ministry. Now, I'm obviously in full-time vocational ministry. (laughs) I am in pastoral ministry, but I can say without a doubt, it is because of God's calling on my life, not because I believe the faulty theology of the statement that there are only two things that will last forever, the souls of men and women and the Word of God. That is a faulty theological statement. If we want to understand what will last forever, we have to look at how God created the world in Genesis 1 to 2 and where the world is headed as revealed in Revelation 21 to 22. In Genesis 1 to 2, God worked. Over six days, God created and worked, and then he rested on one day. And God gave Adam and Eve work. Genesis 1, 28, God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it to work. And then he told them to rest from their work. Humanity created in God's image was to image God by working and resting. Humanity was created to cultivate the garden of Eden by growing it to the ends of the earth. Work is good. It has always been good. It's an integral part of God's world. And then Revelation 21 to 22 gives us the picture of where we are all headed. A new heavens and a new earth. A city where God dwells fully with his people. And so the Bible invites us to to have an imagination about where our life is headed. That we are moving somewhere, created in a garden, moving toward a city. And the way God created the world to get there was through humanity imaging God by the power of the Holy Spirit, through building and developing and creating and restoring and beautifying the earth. In other words, through work. So we need God to give us a biblical imagination of where we are headed with a robust vision of how all work is integral. And so let's turn our attention to Proverbs 31. The strong and the valiant woman who teaches us how to work wisely in this world. We see that she is over her household. As in much of the world today, most people then worked in the same place in which they lived. So some household members could be cooks, cleaners, caregivers, artisans. Some worked in the fields as farmers, shepherds, or laborers. As one commentator notes, the household refers to the whole complex of productive enterprises as well as to the extended family, employed workers, and perhaps slaves who worked and lived there. As the manager of the household, the valiant woman is much like a modern-day entrepreneur or a senior executive, as well as mother to her children. So there's three things I think she wants to teach us this morning about work. Ambition, excellence, and integrity. Ambition, excellence, and integrity. Let's look first at ambition. I mean, she is extremely driven and hardworking. Verse 13, she works with willing hands. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. Verse 17, she dresses with strength, with strength and makes her hands strong. Verse 18, her lamp does not go out at night. She is ambitious. And I use that word purposely, purposefully because I think that in the church there's confusion around this word ambition. 
You see, there is nothing wrong with ambition at work. It's good to have ambition. The question is, are we motivated by godly ambition or selfish ambition? C.S. Lewis writes a rather lengthy uh, section that I want to read for you this morning. This is what he writes. He goes, ambition, we must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, then it is bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it is good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted, but the wish to have his name in bigger types than other actors is a bad one. And then he continues, what we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or look nice. But when the dominant wish is to dance better or to look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that would take all the fun out of it, then you're going the wrong way. See, God wants us to try our hardest, to do our best at work. This is godly and wise, but the love of distinction the love of being better than or the best among peers is when ambition goes the wrong way. It's not always easy to know if ambition's going the wrong way. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, uh, I heard him give two tests to determine whether selfish ambition or godly ambition is working in a person's heart. These, these are the two tests. The first, are you discontent in your work? Discontentment is often the siren sound announcing that something more than just noble intentions are at play in one's heart. Discontentment is a byproduct of selfish ambition. Now, I'm not saying one can't want more or have greater desires for their work, but when someone is disgruntled, when someone is frustrated at work, it often reveals selfish ambition. Because when there is godly ambition, one can rise early, work late, try their hardest, and then trust God for the fruit of one's labor, which yields contentment. The second test to determine who's at the center of your ambition is do you celebrate the success of others in your field? Are you plagued with envy at other people's success? If God is central to one's work and you work hard and others succeed, you can celebrate them. And I will say, life is so, for me, when I'm able to do this, life is so much more fun and happy when we are not trying to knock others off the ladder of competition. It's so much more fun, so much more free. So having ambition is good. We just need to check what type of ambition is fueling us. Is it selfish or is it ambition for God's glory? Now, the good of ambition means laziness and slothfulness are not wise. And there are tons of individual Proverbs that speak against slothfulness. It's quite a big theme if you read through Proverbs. Dorothy Sayers wrote on the topic of acedia, which is translated as sloth. And she says this, sloth means a life driven by a mere cost benefit analysis of what's in it for me. What's in it for me? That's good. Because this means slothfulness could look like a couch potato or a frantically hurried life because both can be driven by what's in it for me. 
This way of defining slothfulness, I think it brings into clarity the reality that slothfulness is plaguing our culture and society in regards to work. We're not driven by a biblical imagination of where we're headed and how our work is integral to where we're going. Work today for many people is a means to get what I want, right? Whether that be money, success, meaning, identity. We've been in a period now known as the great resignation in the workplace. People who are leaving jobs quickly to do what they want to do. And that's not all bad. It's good that we have opportunities and options afforded to us. But when the average tenure of a 25 to 35 year old at their job is a little over two years, I think we can say something other than hard work is driving decisions. And it's not just the great resignation that reveals the plague of of a culture that's looking for what's in it for me in regards to work. This past week, I heard the term quiet quitting. Have you heard that term? Quiet quitting? I never heard it. It's a widely, it's becoming widely accepted that that all all you have to do in work, in your work is enough to get by the minimum that that you draw your own personal boundary lines. You work when you want to work. Don't work when you don't want to work. You squeak by. It's the opposite of godly ambition. And growing numbers of people today are embracing quiet quitting in regards to work. Wisdom teaches us to to work hard. It's a good thing. As long as the ego is not fueling us and that our chief aim is to labor unto the glory of God and to his kingdom come. The second thing that we see the strong woman of Proverbs 31 teaching us about work is excellence. Excellence. Verse 21 says she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. I mean, linen garments, they were the highest textile quality. I mean, she was producing the best. And in verse 31, it says, let her, her works praise her in the gates. What she did was so good, people took notice. She was one of the top clothing designers in the ancient Near East. Wise work is excellent work. It's quality work. For work itself matters. See, part of God's creation mandate to image him through working and resting is to image him by doing quality work. Now, this doesn't mean non-Christians won't or can't do excellent work. They, of course, do. But Christians are compelled to do things excellently. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Martin Luther, the church reformer in the 16th century, said this, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. And the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Wisdom calls us to do quality work, to work excellently, no matter the job God has called us to. 
The last thing that I want us to look at from the strong woman of Proverbs 31 is that she teaches us that work includes integrity. Ambition, excellence, and integrity. Verse 25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. I mean, she is a woman of character and integrity. Meaning, who she is on her inside is integrated to who she is on her outside. And as a result, her husband trusts her. Trust is the key ingredient to any relationship, period. But it is the key ingredient to any healthy workplace relationship and culture. Business writer and leader Patrick Lencioni writes about how trust is the foundation of work. He says it is the necessary component. He calls it vulnerability-based trust. And listen to the way Lencioni describes it. He says this, this happens when people are comfortable being transparent and being honest, even saying things like, I messed up, I need help. Proverbs 23:23 equates honesty and truthfulness with wisdom. It says, by truth, do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Integrity is an honesty with oneself, with others, and with God. It is the ability to say, I messed up, I need help. Integrity does not mean you always have your stuff together. It does not mean that. If you're dishonest with yourself, with others, and with God, it will cause disintegration, a disconnect with who you are. And relationally and in the workplace, it will breed distrust. Honesty causes integration, allows a person to be whole, and therefore it breeds trust. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, says that the strong woman is a woman who fears the Lord. And this is echoing how the book of Proverbs started in Proverbs 1, 7. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. She's bringing the way of wisdom full circle. That a, a wise life, godly skill to navigate the complexities of life come as one surrenders and trust in the Lord above all things. And this is where integrity comes from. Who she is before God is who she is before others. Brothers and sisters, who you are before God is a beloved child of God. Who you are by faith in Jesus is in Christ. You are united to him, which means you are not your hard work. Please do not believe that your hard work makes you more lovable to God. It means you are not your excellence. Though others might try to compete with you about being more excellent, God is not ranking you against others. God is not grading you daily on how well you live. God loves you unconditionally. In Christ, you are completely and wholly loved. And it is this identity that we have before God that God calls us to be with others. And it has major implications for work. Because we can live with great humility of not always having it together. We can tell the truth about ourselves and say things like, I messed up, I need help. We can live with freedom to try hard. And, and whether we fail or succeed, it is not our identity because we are in Christ. Who we are before God is who God wants us to be with others. And it's who he wants us to be at work. So do you see how Sunday is connected 
to Monday. We're not working for Lumen in the Sever Division. We need not enter work and forget who we really are. As we hold together Sunday and Monday, God enables us to live integrated lives, lives of integrity. That in Christ, we learn to die to ego. We die to our selfish ambitions and we crucify our selfish desires. In Christ, we can tell the truth and we can confess our weaknesses and our failures and know we're forgiven and restored. In Christ, he is transforming us day by day, glory into glory, more and more like himself so that our character and our integrity reflect the integrity of Christ. In Christ, we are compelled by his excellent work of his perfectly obedient life and his death on our behalf to trust him and to seek to image him in our excellence. In Christ, we are the redeemed images of God, placed in vocations in downtown Durham, South Durham, North Durham, Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, and Raleigh, in our homes with kids and schools as teachers and hospitals as doctors and law firms as lawyers and startups on Main Street and offices in the RTP differing universities, and God works in and through us to bless the city and the world. In verse 20, this woman shows us that through her work, she blesses the poor. She blesses the needy. Her impact is, is beyond just her household and workplace. Through her work, she blesses those in need. It's a great story about President John F. Kennedy's visit to NASA, the NASA Space Center in 1962. During his visit, he noticed a man who was carrying a broom. Pausing his tour, the president approached the man and said, Hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What are you doing? Well, Mr. President, the janitor said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Brothers and sisters, we are part of a cosmic reality. God's mission, as we sung about earlier, heaven and earth becoming one. And God will do it. We are simply called to be faithful and wise in our work. In Walter Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs, he writes about a time when Steve Jobs was recruiting then CEO of PepsiCo, John Scully, to come and work for Apple. And John Scully said to Steve Jobs, why in the world would I ever leave Pepsi? And Steve Jobs said, well, you can make sugar water for the rest of your life, or you can come with me and change the world. Now, Apple is helping the world in many ways, but it is the Lord of heaven and earth who is changing the world. And church, we the redeemed by grace are brought into God's mission of the garden moving to the new city. And Jesus is the chief builder, architect, developer, and restorer, and by his grace, he uses us as we image God, working and resting, working with ambition, excellence and integrity and resting in the truth that God builds his kingdom, resting in the truth of our identity as beloved children of God who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to know that what happens on Sunday is more real and it's more true than what we experience any other day of the week. Because it is so easy to wake up Monday and forget about what was true and declared and experienced on Sunday. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold together 
the reality of who we are in you to be the reality of who we are when you send us out into this world and specifically into our work. And would you use us by your grace as you, God, build your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.